Hello everyone, I'm Grace Beatty and welcome to Wicked Women, the podcast. Step back in time with me as we learn about some of the most infamous and maligned women in history. Speaking with leading experts, I will discuss these women's backstories and the circumstances that gave them the title of Wicked. In this season of Wicked Women, I will be focusing on some well-known and some lesser-known women in history who have acquired an unsavory reputation. This season will analyze the lives and legacies of Alexandra Fyodorovna Romanov, the last Tsaritsa of Russia, Queen Mary I, more popularly known as Bloody Mary, Catherine Howard, Henry VIII's fifth wife, who was executed for adultery, Empress Wu Zhao, also known as Wu Zixian, the only Chinese empress to rule in her own name, and Empress Theodora, a former sex worker who became empress of the Byzantine Empire. In the end, this podcast does not look to excuse or dispute the wrongs committed by some of these women, but it is also not looking to completely villainize them. Instead, I hope this can be a conversation starter on the complicated legacies prescribed to women in history. In today's episode, I will be analyzing Queen Mary I of England, more commonly known as Bloody Mary. Discussing Mary's life and legacy with me today will be Melita Thomas, the author of the book The King's Pearl, which analyzes Mary's tumultuous relationship with her father, Henry VIII, and Johanna Strong, a current PhD student focusing on rehabilitating Mary in the public eye. Continue listening to learn more about this fascinating and much maligned woman from history. At her funeral in 1558, John White, Bishop of Winchester, said this about Queen Mary I. She was a king's daughter, she was a king's sister, she was a king's wife. She was a queen, and by the same title, a king also. From an early age, Mary's life was defined by the struggle for survival. She was doted on as a child, but in her teenage years, she endured neglect and abuse at the hands of her tyrannical father. Through the storm, she clung to her Catholic faith for strength. She was much celebrated in her early and unexpected years as queen, but after her death, anti-Catholic propaganda ensured that her narrative was drastically and negatively changed. Mary I was the first undisputed queen regnant in English history. However, she's more commonly known by her moniker, Bloody Mary. Children around the globe terrify themselves in front of mirrors trying to summon her startling visage. While her sister's reign is hailed as a glorious age for England, Mary's is remembered as a dark, dangerous, and depressing era defined by Protestant burnings. Born on the 18th of February, 1516, Princess Mary was the fifth and only surviving child of King Henry VIII and his Spanish wife, Catherine of Aragon. The children previously born to the couple were either stillborn or died soon after birth, 
so the robust health of the princess was greatly celebrated. Similarly to most European princesses at the time, Mary was used by her father as a potential wife for foreign kings and emperors. Mary was betrothed for the first time at the age of two to the Dauphin of France. However, as Joanna Strong puts it, as kind of as, as soon as she's betrothed, at the same time, Catherine is, in one of the many instances, pregnant again. So Henry has this kind of dueling perception um, that Mary is his heir, but at the same time, he's assuming Catherine is going to have a son. Within three years, the betrothal and alliance had fallen apart. She was betrothed for a second time at the age of six to her cousin, 22-year-old Emperor Charles V. However, when her parents refused to allow Mary to move to Spain until she was of marrying age, around 12 at the time, the betrothal came to an end. Princess Mary's early life was idyllic. She was praised at court for her intelligence and her grace. Mary definitely is a pawn in his game, but she's a very loved pawn. So she has, you know, a wonderful household. She has time at court. She is kind of lavished with gifts and jewelry. And she is behind her mother, like the top woman at court. And so she had, for all intents and purposes, a really good childhood. She also had a really good education, which was kind of more unusual for the time because royal women were often educated that they would just be wives. They would just be queen's consort. And so they didn't need to understand how to rule the country because they were just supposed to be kind of the, the help to their husband who would deal with that. So she grows up learning lots of languages. She's very accomplished as a child. And so she's very much set up for this role of being at least a queen consort. And she's set up really well for that. But as I think everyone knows, <laughs> she does not end up being a queen consort. And so eventually, as she's the only child that Henry has, she becomes the de facto heir to the throne. And she's put in a position of authority, almost, um, as a de facto princess of Wales. As Joanna Strong just pointed out, Mary's future prospects changed as the years passed and it became clear that the hope for a male heir was in vain. Mary rose to become heir apparent, although she was never formally given the title Princess of Wales. A future that cheered her mother, but horrified her father. There had never been an undisputed queen regnant in England, and Henry VIII, only the second king in the Tudor dynasty, was sure that only a son would ensure a smooth succession. Despite Henry VIII's fervent desire for a male heir, at this point, Mary's life continued relatively unchanged. And life is going great until kind of enter stage right, Anne Boleyn comes on the scene. By the late 1520s, Catherine and Henry's marriage began to fall apart. Desperate for a male heir, and newly infatuated with one of Catherine's ladies-in-waiting, Anne Boleyn, Henry sought a way to annul his marriage. Henry convinced himself that because Catherine had been married to his older brother, his marriage with her was invalid. Catherine, meanwhile, refused to go quietly, claiming that she had never consummated her first marriage, therefore her marriage to Henry was lawful. In addition, she said that only the Pope, as head of the church, 
could decide their case. What ensued was a seven-year battle of wills between Henry, Catherine, and the Pope that would eventually change the entire structure of English democracy and religion. If you want to learn more about what became known as The King's Great Matter, you can find links for additional podcasts on my website. It is unknown when Mary became aware of her father's annulment proceedings against her mother, or his infatuation with Anne Boleyn, but when Mary was 15, her idyllic childhood came crashing down around her. As Anne rises and Catherine falls, Mary's in that weird in-between phase, because she's very much, in Henry's eyes, I think, the past, that she's not a son, she, she can't be queen, because you want a boy. And so as Henry grows to dislike Catherine, or at least to not want her as his queen, Mary falls out of favor. It appears that in the beginning, both Henry and Catherine attempted to hide the growing turmoil from Mary, inviting her to attend Christmas celebrations with them up until 1531, with Anne Boleyn conveniently tucked away at her family home, Hever Castle. However, both Catherine and Mary were banished from court in 1532. Henry officially broke from the Catholic Church the next year, had his marriage to Catherine declared invalid, married a pregnant Anne Boleyn, and passed a law making Mary illegitimate. Mary was commanded to go to the household of the new princess, Elizabeth, as an attendant. Mary's time in Elizabeth's household was humiliating. She was subject to abuse and bullying at the hands of the other staff. Her jewels were confiscated. She was not allowed to walk in the garden, lest she attract unwanted attention. And when Henry VIII visited Elizabeth, Mary was confined to her rooms. I think this period of Mary's life really shows the grit and determination that she has. Um, and I think especially the compassion. Uh, a lot of the time, I think people see Mary as this cruel unfeeling woman but just the fact that she's able to live in the household of the person who has essentially taken her spot and she still loves her sister and I think of course there's still jealousy in a sense but she doesn't take that out on Elizabeth because it's not Elizabeth's fault she didn't ask to be born <laughs> um and so I think Mary tries to reconcile that and so is a very loving sister and I think remains so throughout at least the rest of Henry VIII's life. In 1535, after falling dangerously ill, Mary was removed from Elizabeth's household. The next year, Mary's beloved mother died. She had not been allowed to see her mother for two years before her death and the memory of the woman who instilled in Mary her destiny to rule would stay with her for the rest of her life. After Anne Boleyn's execution and Henry's marriage to Jane Seymour, Mary's fate changed again. In June 1536, under threat of death, Mary signed a formal statement acknowledging the invalidity of her parents' marriage and her own illegitimacy. It was a choice she would regret for the rest of her life. Mary's close friend and ally, Spanish ambassador Eustace Chapuis, wrote to the emperor, This affair of the princess has tormented her more than you think. Mary's capitulation was celebrated at court, and she was warmly welcomed back as her father's daughter 
albeit an illegitimate one. With Jane's untimely death after the birth of her son Edward, Mary stood by her father's side for court events. Still unmarried and childless at 22 years old, Mary took on a maternal role for the newborn prince. She was his most frequent family visitor and monitored his education. Mary remained a constant figure at her father's court, even after he remarried, three more times after Jane Seymour. Mary was incredibly close with Henry's sixth and final wife, Catherine Parr, whom he married in 1544. She referred to Parr as more a friend than a stepmother, and thrived in the favor of the intelligent queen. Mary's life changed once again in February 1544, when Henry passed a new act of succession, restoring both Mary and Elizabeth back into the line of succession after Edward and any future children he might have. While at that moment, the possibility of becoming queen must have seemed remote, it was a final and powerful acknowledgement of her father's love. Mary appears to have been genuinely heartbroken when the imposing Henry VIII passed away on the 28th of January, 1547. Regardless of the abuse she had suffered at his hand, Mary always strove to obtain her father's approval and love. With the death of Henry VIII, Mary's nine-year-old brother Edward succeeded to the throne. Despite her close relationship with Edward, Mary grieved at the intensely Protestant upbringing that Edward had experienced. Mary clung to her Catholic faith, against all the odds, dreaming of a day when England would return to the true church. But Edward, born after Henry VIII was made head of the church, never grew up in the Catholic faith. He was raised on the idea that the Catholic church was filled with idolatry, superstition, and heresy. Edward wished to purge the land of any remnants of the Catholic faith and see his sister converted to his ideologies. What the young king underestimated was Mary's strong will, the same will that had dared to defy Henry VIII. She refuses to compromise where she doesn't have to. As the Catholic faith came under attack, Mary became even more strident in her beliefs hearing up to four masses a day. As historian Anna Whitelock stated in her book, Mary Tudor, England's First Queen, the girl who had been broken down and forced to yield her soul and the honor of her mother in fear of her father was now a mature woman of 33. She would not succumb again. After only reigning for six years, the teenage King Edward began to decline in health from what many now believe to be tuberculosis. In his final days, Edward made a startling choice. He wrote a new device for the succession and disinherited both of his sisters. In their place, he put the deeply devout Protestant Lady Jane Grey. Lady Jane's grandmother was Henry VIII's sister, and therefore she had a claim to the throne. Edward wrote that, I'm convinced that my sister Mary would provoke great disturbances after I've left this life and would leave no stone unturned, as the proverb goes, to gain control of this isle. Therefore, to avoid the kingdom being weakened by such shame, it is our resolve to appoint as our heir our most dear cousin Jane. For if our sister were to possess this kingdom, it would be all over for the religion whose fair foundation we have laid. Some of Edward's advisors sought to ensure that Mary did not know about her brother's rapidly deteriorating health, to avoid a war, 
they needed to lull Mary into a false sense of security until the king was dead and Jane was safely on the throne. Initially, the plan worked, but one of Mary's advisors told her of the deception. On the 3rd of July, 1553, Mary was summoned to Edward's bedside. Instead, she sought refuge at her home in Kennington Hall, Norfolk, where she received confirmation a few days later of Edward's death. On the 10th of July, Lady Jane Grey was proclaimed queen to a stunned and confused London populace. Two days later, Mary and her forces moved forward to London to challenge the new queen. Along the way, people flocked to Mary's banner. Regardless of their views on religion, they believed Mary was the rightful queen. As Jane's supporters abandoned her cause, it became clear that Mary's coup was a success. By the 20th of July, the cry, God save Queen Mary, resounded throughout London. After all she had been through, the abandonment, death, and mistreatment, Mary was queen. I think the, the biggest thing that she learned really early on from her father is that you can love other people in your life, but you have to be looking out for you first. And so I think every decision she makes as queen reflects that. Prior to Mary, they had never been an undisputed queen regnant, which means a queen who rules in her own right. There had been one woman named Queen of England before this, named Empress Matilda. I'll once again link to podcasts about Matilda if anyone wants to learn more. But her claim to the throne caused a civil war known as the Anarchy. Henry VIII's entire legacy, the break with the Catholic Church, his six wives, murdering of his rivals, came down to a belief that a woman on the throne would lead to civil unrest and war. Now, Mary was on the throne and had successfully overthrown an attempt to unseat her. By this point, Mary was a 37-year-old, auburn-haired, well-educated woman whose many bouts of illness through her life showed on her features. But she had proven herself to be a strong-willed, powerful adversary to anyone who opposed her. The new Spanish ambassador stated, The people are full of hope that her reign will be a godly, righteous, and just one, and help to establish her firmly on the throne. Unlike the common contemporary belief that Protestantism was the religion of the majority in England, other than a vocal minority mainly based in the urban areas of England, many had clung secretly to their Catholic faith throughout the religious upheavals of Henry VIII and Edward VI's reign. Before Mary had even reached London, crucifixes, altars, and relics began to reappear in churches and traditional Catholic services were held in Latin once again. With the religious policies set down by her father, Mary was technically head of the Church of England. However, she did not immediately wield that power to return England to the Catholic fold. Mary announced that while she would openly prescribe to the Catholic faith herself, she would not pressure any of her subjects to worship in the same way, at least until an official parliament was called. When Parliament was called four days after her coronation in 1553, the religious practices set down by Henry VIII and expanded upon by Edward VI began to be dismantled. Mary understood that it was essential for her to marry and produce an heir. At 37 years old now, 
Mary's childbearing years were nearing an end, and having been in ill health much of her life, producing a healthy child may not have been easy even in her younger years. As she began to look for potential candidates, Mary leaned heavily on the new Spanish ambassador, Simone Renard, for guidance. Throughout her early life, Mary came to see the Spanish emperor as her champion and protector, and believed that that would continue into her queenship. Renard came to enjoy unprecedented access to the queen. He took full advantage of his new position, encouraging and advising Mary on a number of political decisions. One policy Renard took a direct hand in was Mary's prospective marriage. Renard wanted to ensure that Mary married someone who would be beneficial to the emperor, and so he brought forward Prince Philip of Spain as a candidate. Philip was 26, 11 years younger than Mary. He was also the son of Emperor Charles V of Spain. Mary was delighted by the prospect. Under the terms of the Act for the Marriage of Queen Mary to Philip of Spain, Mary held the exact same power as a king, and would continue to wield that same power even if she got married. In addition, her husband would only hold the title of king for as long as Mary lived. Once she had died, her husband would hold no power in England. Her counsel, however, were against the match, fearing that the marriage would provide an opportunity for Spain to rule England, finding it impossible to imagine a woman withstanding her husband's commands. But Mary had made up her mind. She was going to marry Philip, regardless of her counsel or subject's disapproval. Once the news of Mary's impending marriage reached outside the court, there was an uproar. The people of England distrusted foreigners, and the Protestants in the country feared an introduction of the infamous Inquisition. A man named Sir Thomas Wyatt began to amass men and arms in an attempt to stop the marriage. Mary reacted swiftly. She refused to remove herself to the Tower or to Windsor Castle. Instead, she stayed in London to rally her troops and her subjects. On the 1st of February, 1554, Mary gave a speech to rally England to her cause. Queen Elizabeth's speech at Tilbury has become legend, but it is not difficult to see where she got some of her inspiration. What I am, loving subjects, yet know your queen, to whom at the coronation you promised allegiance and obedience. I was then wedded to the realm and to the laws of the same, the spousal ring whereof I wear hit on my finger, and it never has and never shall be left off. I cannot tell how naturally a mother loveth her children, for I have never had any. But if the subjects may be loved as a mother doth her children, then assure yourselves that I, your sovereign lady and your queen, do earnestly love and favour you. I am neither so desirous of wedding, nor so precisely wedded to my will, that I needs must have a husband. Hitherto I have lived a virgin, and I doubt not, with God's will to still live. But if, as my ancestors have done, it might please God that I should leave you a successor to be your governor, I trust you would rejoice. On the word of a queen I assure you, that if the marriage appear not before Parliament, nobility and commons, for the singular benefit of the whole realm, then I will abstain not only from this, but from any other good and faithful subjects, pluck up your hearts, and like true men stand fast with your lawful prince against these rebels, both our enemies and yours, and fear them not, for I assure you that I fear them nothing at all. The crowd erupted into cheers, and the whole of London flocked to her cause. When Wyatt arrived in London on the 3rd of February, he found every route into London blocked. By 5pm that same evening, Wyatt had been captured and transferred to the Tower. 
Lady Jane Grey had been held in the tower since Mary's successful coup. Mary had made it clear that she did not intend to execute Jane because she had been more of a political pawn than an actual adversary. Unfortunately for Jane, her father took part in what would become known as Wyatt's Rebellion. Mary was persuaded that as long as Jane lived, she would be a rallying point for people wanting to overthrow her. She was also told by Renard that Philip refused to arrive in England until Jane was dealt with. On the 12th of February, 1554, Jane was beheaded on Mary's orders. Princess Elizabeth also came under scrutiny for her supposed involvement in the rebellion. However, Mary was adamant that nothing happened to Elizabeth without solid proof. Elizabeth was sent to the tower, but was released because of lack of evidence two months later. Mary called Parliament as she had promised in her rallying speech during Wyatt's rebellion. She made it clear that she was entering the marriage only for the good of the realm, and if Parliament refused, she would gladly remain unmarried. In the end, Parliament approved the marriage, and Mary and Philip were wed on the 25th of July, 1554. Soon after their marriage, Philip began urging Mary to bring England unconditionally back to the Catholic Church as soon as possible. On November 30th, Reginald Pole, the Archbishop of Canterbury, on the authority of the Pope, absolved England of its sins and officially returned them to the Catholic fold. Mary's greatest objective as queen had been reached. It is not hard to imagine her sheer joy at that realization. Within two months of her marriage, it was announced that Mary was pregnant. In April, Mary went into seclusion, but by the end of July, there was still no baby. Mary may have been suffering from a phantom pregnancy. This occurs when a woman convinces herself that she is pregnant and her body mirrors the symptoms experienced by pregnant women. In an age before modern medicine, it was a common occurrence. Mary's mother, Catherine of Aragon, had experienced them. It was a humiliating and worrying event for Mary. To add insult to injury, Philip announced that he intended to return to Spain to attend to affairs of state. On August 28, 1555, Philip set sail for Spain. February of that same year saw the beginning of the phase of Mary's reign that would go down in infamy. It is important to point out that the burning of people perceived as heretics was widespread in Europe during this time. In many cases, Mary is portrayed as having a unique and villainous zeal to burn innocent Protestants. In fact, Mary was not unique in her belief. Many believed that burning heretics was the only way to purge society and potentially save the victim's soul. The fire itself gave the victim a chance to experience hell in an attempt to get them to recant at the last moments of their life. Mary and her advisors intended the burnings to be a warning encouraging people back into the Catholic fold. However, as Milan Soli stated, Mary had grossly underestimated Protestants' tenacity and their willingness to die for their cause. By the end of her reign, around 280 men and women were burned for their Protestant beliefs. This fact has become inextricably linked with Mary and her reign. However, Mary was not the only Tudor monarch to have a high execution rate. It is estimated that Henry VIII executed around 57,000 people, although that could be exaggerated. Edward had two Protestants burn at the stake and 5,500 executed during the Prayer Book Rebellion. Elizabeth, always the savvy politician, had 183 Catholics hung, drawn, and quartered. However, instead of charging them with heresy, she charged them with treason. 
In addition, she had 800 Catholics hanged for a failed rebellion in the North. Historian Linda Porter puts it this way, Mary burned Protestants, and Elizabeth disemboweled Catholics. It's not pretty either way. So why does Mary go down in history as Bloody Mary, but there's not a Bloody Henry or Bloody Elizabeth? Joanna Strong puts it this way. Why Henry and Edward and Elizabeth don't get this bloody name is because ultimately Protestantism is established as the, the national religion. I think that plays a massive factor. And so it's that idea that there's a quote-unquote correct side. And so any officially Protestant act that punishes Catholicism or seeks to kind of teach the Catholics what they're doing wrong, all in massive air quotes, um, that's seen as something good. And so it essentially falls into the victor writes history and the victor is Protestantism. And so that's a massive factor in why Mary then becomes the bloody Mary that I think popular culture sees her as and that we're trying to change. Melita Thomas argues... We can't overlook the persecution, and that, that I think, can be a, a problem with modern historiography that we, you know, you, you can go too far in, in the other direction, and because Mary is now, you know, we see a more rounded and a more sympathetic picture, but she clearly was in charge of this policy. Her, her reasons for for doing it may be, have been of the best. And in, her, in the context of her time, most people thought the religious persecution to save the, the souls of the many was the right thing to do. But to us, we can never really go with that one. Um, so there were, there were a lot of people, 287, I think, is the, the sort of official count, in a very short period of time. And I think um, uh, Elizabeth and Cecil, they, well, they did a couple of things. One, they managed to equate Catholicism with being a traitor. Uh, so people weren't executed for being Catholic, they were executed for being a traitor. And it was actually an offence in itself to be a, to be ordained as a Catholic priest it, during uh, after 1582, I think, whenever it was. Uh, which was actually, whereas under Mary, of course, it wasn't, it wasn't a crime to be a heretic, it was a crime to publicly practice it and to talk about it, what you were in, you know. Mary was no more keen than Elizabeth to make windows into men's souls as long as people went to church and shut up about it, you know. Half her court was were, were later reformers and, and she didn't ask and she didn't care. It was what was done in public. Uh, whereas, so by making them traitors, it, you, you appeal to an even wider range of public opinion that traitors have to be dealt with. And the other thing that... Elizabeth and, and Cecil did, which Mary never did, is there were an awful lot of people imprisoned who never came to trial in Elizabeth's reign, whereas in Mary's reign, everybody who was accused of heresy, they went to trial, it was a public trial, it was open, and they were executed, whereas a lot of people languished for a very long time in prison in Elizabeth's reign that we never hear about. In March 1556, Philip returned to England with the intention of gaining Mary's support in Spain's war with France. Mary's council refused to sanction a war that they believed had nothing to do with England, but in April, England declared war. Within weeks, Philip once again left England, having obtained what he came for. The war was a disaster for England. In January 1558, Calais, the last English stronghold in France, fell. Mary's grief was somewhat assuaged when she believed herself to be pregnant once more. Her swelling stomach attested to it. But by the end of May, no baby arrived, 
and Mary began experiencing intermittent fevers, insomnia, headaches, and brief losses of vision. Now at the age of 42, and two phantom pregnancies, the hope for an heir seemed to be in vain. Throughout the summer, Mary continued to rapidly weaken. After avoiding naming an heir for her entire reign, in the last weeks of life, Mary accepted the inevitable and named the Protestant Elizabeth her heir. Philip was not at his wife's side in her final hours. She passed away just before midnight on the 16th of November, 1558. The story of this courageous underdog queen has been mythologized over history as a villainous despot bent on the destruction of innocent people. Here's Joanna Strong. She's either a bad queen and just accomplishes nothing and actively kind of destroys England, or she's just a tragic queen. And so there's this idea, I think, that because Elizabeth comes to the throne after Mary and she reigns for so long and we have so many massive historical moments that happen under her reign, Mary kind of gets forgotten. This idea that all Mary did during her reign was persecute Protestants, I think is is what sticks in a lot of people's minds. They forget that she kind of revalued the coinage and she kind of brought that back, which was a massive issue that Henry VIII struggled with, that Edward VI struggled with. And so that's kind of no mean feat. And whether people agreed with it at the time or not, she returned officially England to Catholicism. That's a massive thing. Henry VIII's reign is kind of defined by the break with Rome. Mary kind of brings them back together. And I think she's judged as a bad monarch because she does that. Whereas with Henry, it's, you know, yeah, like fight the power. And so I think that's a massive one. And that she does marry really well. And obviously England is attractive enough to Philip that when Mary dies, he makes advances on Elizabeth. She leaves England in a really good spot. People have been drawn into and convinced by this propaganda that's written after her reign that she was a bad queen. And then on the flip side, we get people who think that she's just, you know, this this tragic woman who married a husband who didn't love her, who couldn't have a baby, who died alone. And essentially, like, she wasn't a good queen. She wasn't a good wife. She couldn't be a mother. Like, what use was she? There's that that divide, I think, that she's somewhere in the middle. Um, you know, we all have good days. We all have bad days. And I think as a monarch, even today, your bad days are on full display. In recent years, a new version of Mary has coexisted with the Bloody Mary narrative. This is the narrative of Tragic Mary. Here's Melita Thomas. The concept of Tragic Mary. You know, we've got past Bloody Mary, but this is Tragic Mary, who's... Um, so badly treated by her father and practically abandoned by her husband and um, favourite words used by are embittered and uh, that sort of thing. In both cases, there is a misogynistic undertone in the historical description. I think the, the fact that she's a woman makes her inherently somehow more threatening to England. So already there is that unknown element that England has never had uh, a long-term queen at this point, um, or a queen regnant at this point. And so just kind of how Mary will go about life is just unknown. And 
So I think kind of part of that is there's this fear of the unknown, which is fair enough. Um, like they don't know when she's going to be crowned. Most of the time, you know exactly what a queen consort is going to wear because there have been hundreds of years of other queen consorts who have worn the same thing. But all of a sudden, when it's a queen regnant, you know, does she wear her hair up? Does she wear her hair down? Does she wear white like queen consorts would? Or does she wear a regal color? And so there's this unknown of a woman in a traditionally male part of society. And then I think that fact that she is a woman becomes more threatening because she's a Catholic woman. And so when she marries the Catholic Philip II and she announces her first pregnancy, all of a sudden there could be a Catholic heir. And that terrifies Protestants because now instead of going, oh, well, we can just wait for Elizabeth and it will all be fine. As soon as Elizabeth is potentially second in line, that kind of hope gets further away. And so the fact that Mary as a woman can give birth to a Catholic heir is terrifying for a lot of people. And I think it's interesting that her female sex is so relied on there because like, uh, Philip II could marry anyone and his child would likely be Catholic. But there's not this threat that, oh my gosh, Philip's going to have a, a Catholic boy. But it's the fear that Mary's going to have a Catholic boy. And we see that fear again when Henrietta Maria marries Charles I. And so there's that fear again that, oh my gosh, she could give birth to a Catholic. But I think it's, it's this fear of female Catholic reproduction and this fear of the unknown of how a woman rules and how a woman can be in power. And then the minute that it's a Catholic woman in power just strengthens that so much more. In hindsight, because England does return to Protestantism and because there is 1688, when England actively goes, we do not want a Catholic monarch and replaces them, we have this Protestant narrative. And so Mary as a Catholic becomes terrifying. In an age where we get Mary II, we get Anne, we get Victoria, I think they've kind of embraced the idea that a woman could be queen, but this fear of a Catholic woman is just one step too far. One of the biggest factors in developing Mary's infamous legacy came during her sister's reign with the rise of a national identity that centered on the rejection of Catholicism. In this case, the famous saying that history is written by the victors perfectly applies. She was a Catholic monarch in a country that became completely Protestant after her reign. In 1563, John Fox published his famous works, The Acts and Monuments, more commonly known as Fox's Book of Martyrs, which many historians believe laid the foundation for Mary's legacy that would stretch into present day. The book was a detailed account of Protestant martyrdom throughout the medieval and early modern periods in England. However, Mary received the most attention. 
of the 57 illustrations included in Fox's work, 30 depict burnings during Mary's reign. The book was incredibly popular during Elizabeth's reign, and even appeared in many churches. Historian Linda Porter believes that without Fox's seminal work, the burnings during Mary's reign would have become a mere footnote to history. Here's Melita Thomas. I think the, the, the ongoing popularity of John Fox's work can't be... I mean, the, the man was, was a genius propagandist. I mean, absolutely no two ways about it. And his, his account is still fundamentally underpinning an awful lot of work now. And, you know, I'm not saying that, necess- that, that his account was not true, but, of course, his account was like many things you know he 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 related the stories he wanted to relate he didn't relate all of the stories so but it was you know one of them after the bible it was the book most likely to be in a house in in britain in, up, up until more or less the beginning of the 20th century so it was just everywhere so that was you know sort of an on, ongoing idea however as joanna strong points out John Fox himself never actually used the title Bloody Mary. He refers to Mary's bloody life and her bloody reign and her bloody counselors. And it's kind of bloody everything except Bloody Mary. It's never used as a reference to her. And it's it's used as a, a description more than as of a nickname and that continues really until from what i've seen it continues until we get to james the seventh of scotland second of england and we get to the perceived threat of catholicism during his reign and that's when mary gets reused and is shown as a threat to English history because of her Catholicism and because of these religious policies that she had put in place. And that's one of the first times that we see Bloody Mary as a moniker instead of a description of a bloody life or a bloody reign. Um, And so from what I've seen, it, it grows from a description to the nickname. And then it's the nickname that sticks, which is unfortunate. The negative persona of Bloody Mary has been continued throughout history, where she has been depicted in media as the ultimate villain. I mean, once you start to get into the the, the, the films and the um, the popular culture, I mean, it's great to have a villain, isn't it? Yeah, we, we, we all love to have a villain. So, and it, there's also a, um, a contrast thing with Elizabeth. Uh, Elizabeth was also a great propagandist. And I think, to be fair to Mary, I think she wasn't a bad propagandist. She just didn't really have very long. Uh, so Elizabeth and the propaganda surrounding her was, was very effective. And, you know, every good guy needs a bad guy. The myth of Bloody Mary is one steeped in misconception. Mary was neither a vindictive evil woman bent on the destruction of her people, nor a lovesick, weak woman at the mercy of the men in her life. She was stubborn, inflexible, and flawed in many ways, but she was also a product of her time. Many of her actions would not have seemed strange to her contemporaries, but are impossible for our modern minds to conceptualize. She is remembered for the burning of Protestants, 
But what is often not remembered is that Mary laid the very foundations for queenship that her sister Elizabeth and subsequent queens came to enjoy. When discussing how people today should analyze Mary's life and legacy, Joanna Strong put it this way. We have to be so careful not to judge her legacy based on memories of her reign, but base it on how it was understood at the time and how we understand the understanding at the time and how that's changed through the years. On a lighter note, Melita Thomas believes that we should remember the positives of Mary's life and not get stuck in the portrayal of either tragic or evil Mary that we see so often in the media. I'm just going to make one final point. The other thing that Mary needs to be remembered for is she was a lot more fun than people people think she was. She gambled, she danced, she hunted, she, she loved fabulous clothes. She was not, you know, dowdy and crying in the corner. <laughs> in the end, we can never truly know the real Mary. That person has been lost to history. What we can do is bring more empathy to our analysis and interpretation of Mary using the sources we have available to us. In my opinion, the more authentic interpretation is far more interesting than Bloody Mary. <laughs>